So this evening, if you've been uh, with us a few Sunday nights now, you know we're going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5. And today we're going to focus specifically on peace. But before we, uh, we get to that, before we explore what it means to have the fruit of peace, I think we need to talk a little bit about what the fruit of the Spirit are to begin with. And before we really get to what the fruit of the Spirit are in Galatians 5, I think we need to kind of back up and consider what's Paul doing in Galatians 1 through 4 so that we can better understand it. Now, I don't know if I can do this, but let's just have a sermon timeout for a second and, and have a frank conversation. I, if I were in your shoes and the preacher told me that his introduction had not one but two parts, my wife would have just heard an audible groan, and I would have sunk maybe two to three inches further into my uh, seat, because this sounds like it's gonna be a long one. And I know some of you may be thinking, Drew's completely lost his mind, he's lost all sense of boundaries and time, but here is my solemn vow. We do have a lot of ground I'd like us to cover through scripture quickly, but we will be done on time tonight unless you know something happens and we're not. But other than that, we will be done on time tonight. So sermon back in. So what does Paul mean by fruit of the Spirit? And notice it's singular. It's one thing, the fruit of the Spirit. And I think the most helpful way to think about it is that Paul is referring to a certain lifestyle, a certain set of characteristics that mark those who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit impacts you, you become a certain kind of person and that's his fruit in your life. It'd be as if, uh, imagine that as a gift, somebody gives you a beautifully ornate box or if you share my unhealthy caffeine addiction, maybe a beautifully ornate mug and you receive it into your hands and naturally the first thing you wanna do is just begin to flip it over and look at all the various facets and sides and the wonder of the design. And in many ways, that's what Paul is doing with this list. He is taking the fruit, the lifestyle that the Holy Spirit produces in you and he's looking at the different angles. He's exploring the different facets. But then I think we need to ask the question, and this is just a helpful thing to ask while you're reading the Bible, why in Galatians 5 does Paul bother to mention the fruit of the Spirit at all? What, what's that doing in the letter of Galatians? So very quickly, I'd like us to start at the beginning of Galatians and come at chapter 5 from a run. So in Galatians 1 through 4, Paul has just spent a lot of time very carefully explaining that the Old Testament law, that covenant God made with Moses, that's done, that is gone. And in its place, Jesus had made something new, a new covenant, a new way to relate with God. And this one has different terms. It's got different rules. Under this covenant, those who are considered the people of God, those who have salvation are those who trust in Jesus and submit to him as Lord. But now Paul, being the wise pastor slash apostle that he is, anticipates that some people might have a certain thought come into their minds as he says that, which is this. 
well, if all I need to do to be saved is trust in Jesus, repent of my sins, submit to him as Lord, that kind of sounds like a pass to just do whatever I want afterwards. And you notice 2,000 years, people haven't really changed all that much because if you hang around people in my generation, we are all about freedom in Christ. So Paul anticipates that. And in Galatians 5, he offers his response, which is this. Look, if you're thinking along those lines, you have missed a very important piece of the picture, which is this. Yes, to be saved, all you need is to trust in Jesus and submit to him as Lord. But once that does, has been done, he affects a change within you. You become a different person through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now you've got new desires, new inclination, a new sense of what's good and beautiful. And it's in the midst of that conversation that he introduces the fruit of the Spirit. Because this is Paul basically saying, look, the, the thing that the Holy Spirit makes you, this is what it looks like. It looks like these fruits, this fruit, these many facets manifesting themselves in your life. And in doing that, I think Paul has a bit of a tension in these fruit or this fruit with its many facets. Because on the one hand, the fruit of the Spirit is something the Holy Spirit does in us. It is something that happens to us. If you are a Christian, this is what you look like, but by the same token, the fruit of the Spirit are an ideal, something to strive for, something to labor to become. So as we turn now and focus on the fruit of the Spirit, bear this in mind, brothers and sisters. Peace is something you are. It's something you have in Christ, and it is something you and I must strive to produce. Now, as we consider peace this evening, there's four questions I think we need to ask to really understand what's Paul saying and how does it impact us? And, and the four questions are this. First, what is the fruit of peace? What does Paul mean by peace? Second, how does one produce peace if this is a fruit and we're called to cultivate it? How does that happen? Third, why is peace so important? And then lastly, as we turn our attention towards the Lord's Supper, I want us to ask, how does peace relate to this holy ordinance? So first off, what is peace? You see, the difficulty is that the word peace in this context can have at least two meanings. On the one hand, it could be kind of an internal peace, as in somebody's got a sense of calm in the midst of life's anxieties and trials, and maybe you, you got a picture of kind of a Buddhist monk type character that, that comes to mind. That's one sense of peace, but then there's another one. Not internal, but external. Peace in our relations with other people. Peace in the sense that we, we have harmony in our relations with others. They think of us as on their team. Now, I am just a lowly youth pastor, so if you were to ask me to adjudicate which one of those Paul met, I'm not really your guy for that, but I am happy to read the scholars who do make these decisions for us, and they tend to think Paul means it in that second sense, that at least in this passage, his emphasis is not on internal peace, but peace in our relations with others. And in that sense, I think what Paul says here is much akin to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called sons of God. How do you know you're a son or daughter of God? You make peace. How do you know the Holy Spirit resides inside of you? You make peace. Peace, the fruit of peace, is the fruit of making peace in our relationships with others. So that's the first question. Now on to the second. How does one produce this glorious fruit of peace? And here, I'd like us to actually jump a little bit further ahead in the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect or be mature, therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. So here's the, the first observation. This is the first of three observations I'd like to make on this passage. Number one, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And I, I hope you see how striking and radical and counterintuitive that is, the call not just to love your friends, not just to love those you get along with, or that neighbor that you just wave to and he waves back and you never have any beef with them. No, this is a call to love your enemy. Now the second observation, building on that is, if Christians are called to love their enemies, then I believe Jesus is teaching the way we make peace with others is by loving them. And here's how I get there. What is an enemy? What does it mean to say someone is my enemy? And I think the answer is my enemy is the person I'm not at peace with. If person X is my enemy, I don't have peace between us. So in saying you are to love your enemy, Jesus, we could kind of spin Jesus' words to say this or, or interpret his words to say this. You are to love the one you're not at peace with. Why? to bring about peace between you. Now, I think we, we could very well kind of just end the sermon there with a hearty yes and amen. Love your enemies, we're, we're good, everybody is on board with that. But if you're like me, hearing the phrase, love your enemy, does not immediately translate into clear next steps for what I'm supposed to do with those that I'm not at peace with. Now, it could be that you all are, are just more intelligent than I am, and this is kind of a waste of time, but let's just assume it's not and plow forward and ask the question, what does it actually mean to love your enemy? And here, I think we need to be careful and define love. And to do that, I, I want to turn to an individual who is generally considered to be among the most dry and boring of old dead guys, but every once in a great while produces a golden nugget, and that's Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas defined love in this way. He said there are two parts to love. To love someone is to seek that person's good and to seek to be united with them. 
So to love someone is to seek that person's good and to seek to have a relationship with them. And and let me just illustrate for you. You wanna know one of the ways I know my wife is a loving mother? It's because she works tirelessly for the good of our son. My son's one and a half years old and I tell him every week to be eternally grateful for his mother because were it just the two of us, it would be the one of us in very short order. My wife is regularly researching toys and programs to help his development. She is managing his daily schedule to keep his energy level up at the proper time. She rearranges our house often so that it is a safe place for him to explore at his current level of capacity. She labors selflessly for the good of our child and I believe that is a demonstration of her love because she seeks his good. But then consider that second part of that definition, that that loving involves trying to be united with somebody. And here, recall with me those famous words in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he did what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In other words, when John wants to show us that God loves us. The way he does it is he points to the fact that Jesus died so that we can have a relationship with him. You can't love somebody and desire never to be around them. The words we have to describe that are disdain or hatred or dislike. If you love someone, you will desire some form of relationship with that person. So, Those are our two aspects of love, to seek that person's good and to seek to be united with that person. But now let's bring this back into the conversation of loving your enemy. What does it look like then to love in that way with someone you aren't at peace with? And here, I just wanna give one example. You could give many examples of this, but one example I think fits in our context and that's this. Imagine that you and somebody in your BFG don't quite see eye to eye. Maybe you just have personalities that clash. Maybe they wronged you. Maybe if you're like me, they're a Michigan Wolverine fan, so you're kind of starting from behind to begin with. It could be a myriad of different things. They ran over your dog. Whatever the problem, you guys just don't get along. And now imagine that you're scrolling through Facebook, as we do, and you come across an event they've posted in your BFG Facebook page where they need help moving. And so in a moment of exceptional godliness, you decide to sign up for that. And you go, you have a good attitude, you work hard, you drop a few hours of your day into uh, helping those people move into their new home. And then maybe a few weeks go by and you say to that individual, look, you know, I know know we haven't always seen eye to eye, but but I'd like to get past that. Maybe, Maybe we could get coffee. Sometime, Or maybe the hurt's too deep and you're not there and, and the conversation has to be a little more guarded and you say, look, I, I know there's animosity between us and I honestly don't know what it looks like for us to get past this, but I, I would like to try. That, brothers and sisters, is loving someone you are not at peace with. That is being a peacemaker. That is seeking that person's good and that is seeking to be united with them. And I believe on the authority of Holy Scripture that that is effective. That is what it looks like to build peace in our midst. 
being a peacemaker is loving someone you are not at peace with, as Jesus called us to do, which means seeking their good and seeking to be united with them. Now, let's move on to the third question, which is this. Why is peace so important? Why does scripture place such an emphasis on peace among ourselves? And I believe that Paul gives us one of the most insightful and clear answers in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. He writes this. I'm sorry, 12 through 15. At that time, you, speaking to Gentiles, were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel's and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from two resulting in peace. Jesus died to unite Jews and Gentiles together in a new community. You see, he, he writes to the Ephesians, to these Gentiles, and he reminds them that there was a point when they were outside the people of God. They stood outside the citizenship of Israel. To be a member of God's people was a privilege reserved only for the Jews at one time. But now in Christ, he has died to do away with that to build a new people, a new citizenship where Jews and Gentiles stand as equal members united together in peace by their common declaration that Jesus alone is Lord and Savior. And bear in mind that in saying he came to unite Jews and Gentiles, that is all of us. In the ancient Jewish mind, there were only two people, classes of people. There were Jews and not Jews and they called the not Jews Gentiles. So Jesus dies to unite all people together in peace under the banner of his lordship. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that if you are here tonight and you claim to be a follower of Christ, you cannot make that claim and not love the things Jesus loved and not care about the things Jesus cared about and not deeply be committed to the commands and precepts that he has prescribed. And Jesus cares about peace because Jesus died for peace. If you follow Jesus, you, you love what he loves and Jesus loves peace among his people. But I, I don't want us to be naive this, this evening, brothers and sisters. I, I don't want us to pretend like this is an easy call that Jesus has, has given us. I, I don't want it to seem as if this notion of loving your enemy and being a peacemaker, that, that's just a light thing. Because the reality is, peace is hard. Peace is hard because people hurt. You know, I... I know in, in contexts like this, you don't 
you don't always want to divulge too much about personal histories, but this is my church family, so I, I feel I, I can perhaps say a little more than I would in other contexts. But when I was a, a much younger man, there was a particular individual who I had great respect for and great fondness for, and they, they made certain choices that very negatively impacted myself and my family in, in the kind of way where I can feel the effects of it today, for good or for ill, the choices they made changed the trajectory of my life. And you know, I, I haven't seen this individual in maybe 15 plus years. Most, most weeks, most months, they, they probably don't even enter my mind. But I remember not too long ago, I was walking through the mall with my wife and out of the corner of my eye, I, I thought I saw them. And before I knew what was happening, this terrible rage welled up in my heart. And it shocked me, shocked me so much that the, the, the shock overpowered the rage because here, here I was 15 years later and I didn't even realize how deep that wound went. And that, that's just the reality of being among people, fallen people. You can't live in a place like this. You can't live among a people and not hurt others and be hurt yourself. Our nature drives us towards animosity. Whether it's a thoughtless word or a thoughtless deed or even something more malicious and directed or whether it's a mild slight or a terrible betrayal, we do things that make it difficult to love others. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to care more about his kingdom, to love him and his ways more deeply than we do our pain and our frustration and our resentment. Because there will come a point, brothers and sisters, where we have to decide whether we value our resentment and pain more than we do our Jesus. Because if you value your Jesus more, you will seek the peace he commands us to follow. Lastly, as we uh, begin to turn our attention now towards the Lord's Supper, I'd like to ask one last question. How does peace relate to the Lord's Supper? And here I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Now, in this passage, Paul's main point has to do with idolatry. But just to change things up, why don't we ignore Paul's main point for once and focus instead on a side point that he makes, which is this. Paul highlights the fact that one of the realities the Lord's Supper reminds us of is that we are united through the death of Jesus into one people. We share one bread. We drink of one cup. Because we have one Savior and we have one Lord. And he has declared, let there be peace among you. 
Now, in a moment, I'm, uh, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I, I would invite the, the deacons to come forward and, and Paul Cook to assist me and the worship team to come back on the stage. But as we, we turn now towards the Lord's Supper, I, I would ask you, brothers and sisters, to reflect upon this thought. Let the Lord's Supper remind you of the price that was paid for your salvation. Let it remind you of the love of your Savior. And then ask yourself, are you pursuing the peace that he died for? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in your infinite, eternal wisdom, you sent Jesus to die on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you submitted to the will of the Father. You died on our behalf to bring about peace between yourself and us and peace in our midst. And God, the Holy Spirit, we thank you that as a response to the act of Jesus, you came down to lowly people to dwell in our hearts and bear your fruit. And I pray that as we leave this place, your fruit would flourish at ninth and O like a beautiful, luscious garden. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.